Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca. I'm Jared Kimber. This episode of Red Inca, we talk to a writer about his play set during the 05 Ashes. We talk identity, Ashes, school cricket, coaching young players, Asian cricketers within the English game, and of course, the famous Tebbit test, which was not an actual test. Hi there, uh, my name is Mateen and I'm a playwright um, and I've got a new play coming out called Duck, which as the name might suggest, involves cricket in some way, shape or form. Uh, it's the story of Ismail. He's a 15-year-old British Indian and Muslim schoolboy. Um, and he's the star of his cricket team at quite a posh, elitist school uh, set here in the UK. Um, and the play is actually set in 2005. And so in the backdrop of the of the play, we've got England, as, they, as those will remember, you know, embarking on trying to win their first Ashes series, the first since 1987. And you also have this play set in London um, and you have the backdrop of the 7-7 London bombings as well. And that really builds um, a whole world around this boy and this character. And at the start, he's at the start of the cricket season and he's got his sights set on becoming the best batsman in his school's history. So, you know, he's a cricket obsessive. Um, but as Duck might suggest, his performances on the on the pitch take a turn for the worse. And with, with some bad batting comes a few other things that go wrong for him in his life. And we get to sort of sit there and watch a 15-year-old boy try and battle through uh, turmoil for the first time in his young life. Uh, that sounds great. And when I, I, you know, was sent, I was your PR. It's very rare I respond to anyone in cricket when they send me PR. So the <laughs> fact that I've got PR and you're here tells tells you that I was quite interested in it and that it, it crosses over with a lot of things that I am interested in. But let's start okay. with the fact that uh, what is your cricket background? Yeah, I, as far question. as I'm aware, you're not a professional player. <laughs> not not even in the slightest. And yet, you know, now making a play about cricket, I'm surrounded by entirely non-cricketers. So by default, I become the expert in the room and, you know, the the consultant when it comes to batting technique, terminology, cricket of the uh, cricket history, all the above. Um, I was an avid school cricketer. I would say, you know, from as far back as I can remember, and I've got the home videos to support that. You know, I had a bat in my hand. Um, my dad, being an Indian man, um, was was a huge cricket fan. Big uh, again, just amateur player himself, amateur at the most amateur level. Just you know, with with friends uh, in the parks, things like that. And he definitely passed that on to me. And it was a big, big part of my childhood. Um, there's some overlap in the world of the play that you know sort of mirrors my own experiences. Um, I was a captain of school teams from a young age. 
and sort of love to just be right in the thick of it. And I think as any young boy does too, or any young sports fan does, I was always trying to emulate the pros when I went out there as well. You know, the way in which I tried to examine the pitch, knowing nothing about what a wicket looked like or what was meant to tell me, but weighing that up as I would go out and do a toss with the other nine-year-old captain, things like that, you know, strong, strong memories for me. It's been a very long time since I played any sort of organised cricket. Um, I would say not since the age of 16 or 17, unfortunately, but still a fan from the sidelines now. And how did you become a playwright? Uh, Yeah, great question. Um, A little bit by accident. I think it was something that was living in the back of my mind for a long time, thinking, you know, I go, I love to watch the theatre, I love television and film, you know, sort of having a great amount of love and joy in, in engaging with, with, with creative arts in that way and working in a very, very different capacity, but secretly in the back of my mind wondering, you know, what if, what if, you know, this could be a different experience for me. So I decided to sort of like treat it as an experiment and apply to a drama school here in London. You know, we've got so much live theatre, things of this nature happening in the city that like, honestly, when I was sort of trying to approach it in a logical, analytical way, I was like, this is the best place I could give this a go, you know, and started out drama school on a writing course. And, you know, from probably the first week, I was like, yeah, I think this is the one for me. Um, And that's about five years ago, sort of been uh, developing my craft since then. But this is the first full length play of mine that I'm bringing to the stage. That's quite exciting. So where does, and I know, like, as a writer, I get asked this all the time, it's an annoying thing. But Kind of where does the germination for this come out of? You've already said that some of it is autobiographical from a cricket perspective. I'm assuming that means that also it is, you know, I don't want to age you at all, but 2005, (laughs) you know, I could see you're probably a younger man at that stage. Uh, Yeah. uh, Well, we all were younger at at that, but you know, it's a long time ago now. So you might've been around that age. So it's a semi-autobiographical story from that point of view, but how does the cricket become a part of it? Like, uh, is it... Is it because cricket is such a dramatic way of retelling the story? Or did you think you couldn't tell the story without using cricket? Yeah, I think there's so many exciting themes that cricket, once it presented itself to me, it all fell into place and felt like an extraordinarily neat thing. Um, You know, this is a school environment and we've got like the protagonist is a young brown boy, but his classmates, his schoolmates, his teachers, everyone's white in general. And it's sort of the embodiment of the school is, is this institution of, of whiteness in that respect, old, steamed in, in values and tradition. Um, and to me, like how cricket relates to that, you know, there's obviously a very English element to cricket and all of the sort of things we associate with with cricket from an English perspective, whether that's afternoon tea, whether that's gentlemanly conduct, whether that's uh, clean cricket whites, you know, I think there's this sort of export of values that exists in the English version of cricket, or traditionally at least. And then obviously India and cricket, you know, go hand in hand um, and have done in my entire life. And I feel like growing since and, and, and bigger and bigger all the time and sort of that just creates a brilliant to me question right at the beginning of, of of the writing process like is cricket an English thing is cricket an Indian thing there's no clear answer right so that to me was a, a wonderful jumping off point and then I think the other really big uh, driving factor with the sporting context in the school environment was it, I wanted to give this character a lot of status I think we've often seen stories where the non-white uh, person or the person the minority is like a fish out of water mm. or they're somewhat like Um, you know, they don't really know how to fit into that environment that they're the minority in. Whereas I thought, well, how do things work in a school? If you're really good at sport, you're like the most popular person, you've got friends, you've got status, you're kind of, you've got the run of the place. And I was like, well, let's make this guy the cricket star. 
which makes him, you know, life is easy. He's got it all figured out. He's got something that he's naturally talented at. His life has been fairly straightforward until now just by being good at cricket. Let's disrupt that, see, see where he's left. And so again, like cricket just made sense there um, as a way to sort of give him, give him a skill, give him an attribute, something that he's really good at. And also just like then the, the competition aspect of that. Once, that. once you have a bad batting performance, what does that do to you? on the pitch, off the pitch? what you, How do your teammates treat you? How does your coach te- treat you? So those are the relationships and the play that are crucial to, to Ismail, that's the main character's name, and those degrade, you know, as his as his performance on the pitch uh, does. It's a really interesting time for this play to come out, and it was one of the reasons I thought it'd be a really good episode is because I, I don't know how much you follow professional cricket at the moment, but there's an organisation, I want to get their name right, they're called the South Asian Cricket Academy. And part mm. of the reason was is that English cricket, when you play it, is maybe dominated by Asian people is incorrect, but there's Asian people. It's very hard to play cricket in in England at any level and not have an Asian person playing. And then you get to the professional level, and that's not represented at the same way. And so this organization has started doing some good work. We've done episodes on that before. I I thought this was interesting. And also, you know, you're... the, the thoughts that you've, you've put a young Asian player in who's the star of, of the team um, in what is, you know, this, as you say, it's an English sport, but also now an Asian sport, right? It, it, it's sort of swapped over. There, there is an interesting disconnect at times between the fact that in, in the UK, if I, if, I have, if I do a live event, you know, I'm going to have so many young Asian kids at that, mm. that live event. But then the other a lot of people I'm going to have are going to be people from privately educated schools um, who sound a lot more like you, um, uh, you, you with with your current accent. I'm not going to suggest what school you may have gone to, but you know they 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 sound like that. What I thought was interesting about yours is that it's a combination of both, right? It's 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 an Asian in that uh, elite thing, which makes it like the most cricket thing in the UK at the moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that's. You've you've nailed it in the sense that that's true to my experience, but also like something I hadn't seen before. You know, to me, I, becoming a writer was all about telling new stories. Like I said, I'd seen a lot of things on the stage before. I've barely ever seen, you know, myself reflected in art and something I think is really crucial, really important, really significant to our overall experience in this world. But yeah, like that's what my guiding light is. Can I tell a story that someone hasn't seen before that puts people they may have made a presupposition about or seen in only one specific context in a completely different way? Um, and I think the example you've given there about either Asian or private school, yeah, yeah it's, it's so fascinating. And we've also seen like, society move and change in my lifetime where that overlap exists more and more you know at the highest level of our government now we've got an Indian man who went to a privately educated school running the country do I agree with the way in which he runs the country absolutely not but there's references to that in the play um being able to use the benefits of hindsight and things of that nature but like you said I mean that disconnect that exists in terms of Asian representation in cricket um yeah when I was growing up I belonged to school teams the local cricket club in Northwest London, where it was stocked full of Asians, London schools set up again, you know, broad representation of cultures and identities there. And yet, you know, that's not reflected in the professional game. And, you know, the other sort of unhappy coincidence with the timing of this play for me has been, you know, the story of Azim Rafiq and his experience Mm -hmm. in Yorkshire. And, you know, I had, I wasn't aware of that story until after I wrote the play. And it's just sort of this, this thing that has snowballed in my own understanding and also in terms of, I think, the public consciousness and reckoning around that situation that, you know, has given me deeper thought and meaning to the to the play and its development as well and the message, I guess, that I want to it, people to take away from coming to see the show. 
Did you rewrite anything after Azim Rafiq or did it just make you feel like, oh, okay, you know, this, there, it, there's a deeper issue here that isn't just me and a couple of my friends? Exactly. I think I didn't rewrite anything. I didn't really have to. It was, you know, shockingly overlapping in terms of what we're talking about because the sort of the real pain here is, you know, being treated poorly by your teammates and by your own coach, right? The sort of people that you surround yourself with that you'd hope are your compatriots going into whether you want to call it battle or just and you know fun either way and i think that level of betrayal is really tough and i also think that i we we did a short run of this play last summer where i was able to sort of you know meet and speak to people who came to see the show afterwards and almost universally uh people came to see the show whether they were brown or another sort of non-white or minoritized identity they came up to me and they said you know this reminds me so much of an experience i had at school with so and so friend or so and so teacher and they've sat on these things for years they haven't really you know thought that much about them you know we push these things down in a way the scars of, of these encounters and i remember so distinctly there was that um time that azim rafiq he went to give evidence to a government committee and they sort of aired it live on television and i remember this sort of outpouring on the internet of people sharing their own stories on twitter being like mm. yeah this happened to me this happened to me this happened to me it's a very uh common story i would say in that respect universal in that respect which is obviously like uh not not a great thing on the one hand but to me also as a writer it's like again your opportunity to feel seen and if it's not something that you can relate to on a personal level perhaps it lends a perspective to that experience that maybe you haven't considered before uh one thing i was interested in to see whether it made the book was the tebbit test I'm, assure, I'm assuming you know what the Tebbit test is. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but for those listening who don't, who aren't aware, uh, was it Lord Tebbit? Was he a lord? It feels like he was a lord. He was a lowly MP back then. Low, he was lowly a, you MP. Know, <laughs> and then you know, only later was he rewarded for his for his you know fairly uh, colourful points of view with a with a lordship, yeah. as as often is the case. But yeah, to recap that, you know, that coincides with the year of my birth. Again, to age myself, 1990. I'm just popping out of the womb and this man's uh from his from his esteemed position as a member of parliament saying you know Asians who come to the UK we can measure whether or not they're going to be you know a, a good part of British society by which cricket team they support are they still harking back to where they came from or are they living in the here and now and supporting England basically he laid down a gauntlet and said you know you better you better support England if you want to stick around here and you want to be accepted here and what what a crazy thing to, to for me like I obviously didn't know about it at the time I was I was zero years old but learning about that at a certain age and I think yeah it obviously forms part of the play and for me the way in which it, it exists in the play is like this character's dad has to tell him about it and sort of mm. reveal this thing which um, yeah it feels like a violation you know can you imagine you know that sort of uh, Firstly, on, on on the first time, it's such a superficial way to 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 judge a person and judge their contribution to society by. And I think the most important thing about the Tebbit test in its relevancy today is like its its echoes exist in all parts of our narrative today. In in, in conversations about uh, migrants, uh, immigration, identity, people, you know, assimilation, all of these things are so so present day. They have not necessarily moved on. Um, but yeah, this, the cricket specific context of that is a fascinating one and obviously speaks closely to me and to the world of the play. Well, I always find it really interesting because I think when I was younger, I would have, I wouldn't have agreed with Tebbit, but I would have agreed with the very basic principle of, uh, you should pick a cricket team and support them, right? Mm. Whether it be 
England or India or Pakistan, that wouldn't have bothered me, but you had to pick a team. I wouldn't have liked anyone following two different teams. And then I'm now an Australian who lives in London. I have children who are, you know, Sri Lankan um, uh, ethnically or half Sri Lankan ethnically. And, and like, it's and the world has completely changed. Whereas now my kids sort of ask me who they should support in cricket. I said, mm. if I was you, I'd just pick the team who's going to be the best for the longest because uh, <laughs> that will give you the least amount of heartbreak. If you think that's going to be England, go all in. If you think that's going to be Australia, <laughs> if Sri Lanka are coming up on the outside, you know, pick your team. But yeah. I do think things have changed a lot. Whereas I think still in two, well, Graham Swan was complaining about Pakistani fans with English accents um, at cricket mm. grounds, you know, within his career. This is not something that has, has completely gone away. And there will be, there will be English players, well, I mean, even someone like Joffre Archer, but there will be English players with English accents who grew up supporting other teams. That's obviously part of modern life. And so I did wonder, based on the topic of your play, what team you actually support? <laughs> yeah, it's a really good question. And I think going, trying to look back to, to childhood, you know, and I, I tried to touch on this in the play too. It's like, I don't recall a specific moment where I picked a team. And I think going back to what you said, it was like, well, who was good. I was watching all kinds of teams. My, I, I can tell you certain things Like my favorite player when I was seven or eight years old was John T. Rhodes. I used to love the way he threw himself around and took incredible catches, you know, and I think some of my distinct cricket watching memories uh, were the Christmas holidays when I was like six, seven years old and watching um, Boxing Day Test Match and getting to stay up um, and watch that stuff or wake up really early with my dad. But Definitely, I had an England shirt, World Cup 1999, you know, went to games. And again, even from my dad's perspective, you know, personally, I know this is very different for loads of other South Asians. He was someone who was a cricket fan more than he was, uh, I remember him like supporting England or India. But if I ask him today, and I have many times, he's an India fan through and through. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, like my, my cricket love has has waned from supporting a team. And I think that's from a lot of these reflections and time spent thinking about how supporting a team, especially a national team, fits into larger questions about identity. But I followed England. I was there in 2005 when England won the Ashes and I couldn't have been happier. And ultimately, like, as someone born and raised in this country, it's almost impossible for me not to root for the country of my birth. And yet, you know, having the pleasure of the choice of an Mm. Indian team that is phenomenal at cricket and have some of the best cricket players to look up to and admire and support, you know, the only time that question ever comes up for me is if England are playing India, if I'm honest, you know, other than that, I can I can have the the benefit of, of of two, which I'm sorry if that violates your your requirements. No, it it certainly would have violated my 15 year old requirements. Uh, I think uh, I think the world's just changed. I mean, I remember reading an article by, is it Gar- I want to say Gareth Southgate. I know nothing about football, but I think he's the English football coach. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, manager, whatever they call them. And he was talking about the many different ethnicities of the players and backgrounds of the players. And that some, there's so many great young football talents now who can qualify for like three different countries. Yeah. Right. And, and you, you know, you see that in so many sports now as well. And so it's not just the supporters, right? It's the athletes themselves get yeah. to pick. Joffre Archer, his father was a tube driver and he grew up in Barbados. He gets the choice of where yeah. he wants to play and play his trade. And I think that's a fantastic thing. And when I was growing up, everything was literally white because I was in Australia at times, <laughs> but it was, you know, very a black and white situation where you picked a team. I just don't think that is how modern um, things go. And it's really interesting, you know, that there's still that little bit of turmoil when India play England uh, uh, from your perspective. But what's more interesting about this particular play, of course, is that it's set with the backdrop of the 05 Ashes. Yeah. Right. Which are, 
for your story, a very a, a very white series, um, you know, compared to you know, if India or Pakistan or Sri Lanka or Bangladesh or someone else was playing in the West Indies. It's a very, very white series from that point of view. But obviously that series as a young cricket fan still was uh, integral enough that you've made it the backdrop. Mm-hmm. Is it because it was the backdrop of particular issues in your life at that time? Or is it more that it was just a really important thing in, in, in your life at that time? You'd already made your character a, uh, a, a cricketer like you were, and it just made sense to, to put that behind it. Yeah, really, really good question. I think everything can coalesce in a really neat way. To me, it's a teenage story, right? So the character's 15 in 2005 as this stuff is happening. He's on the cusp of adolescence and it's like, that's when you're just figuring out who you are. Um, and then this thing is happening, this really exciting thing on his doorstep, you know, in set in London for a cricket fan, the 05 Ashes are just such an iconic and memorable experience. And yet perhaps it threw up that question for this character in his world for the first time, like, who do I support? You know, am I just going along with who everyone else supports around me, which is obviously England? Am I swept up in the euphoria or the furor around that? Or is it actually like something I've ever even given thought to? And again, going back to sort of how one makes these choices, I think for lots of young people growing up, you probably, it's like who takes you to watch what team and and when they play. And like, that's almost a passive choice. And I think my cricket choices were based around, you know, my dad and I, we used to live in West London and we'd go watch Surrey play. So I was a Surrey fan by default. And my friend might take me to a test match. So I was an England fan by default. And, you know, I'm couching a little bit, but if, and unfortunately I'm a big football fan. So if anyone tried to pull this in the football front, I would also try to call bullshit on them. Yeah. I'm an Arsenal fan and I don't see there being two ways about that. So I think it's, it's entirely, I guess the, the thing that's more interesting to me is um, how these things get used and abused, I think, in, in, a, in a more um, nefarious way. And, you know, in the research for this play and in my deeper understanding of how cricket exists in, in British society, learning about things like Devon Malcolm being deemed ineligible to play for Yorkshire because he was born in Jamaica and the sort of the extent of Yorkshire cricket clubs, like desire to only have players from the county of Yorkshire to me. I'm like, what, what, what's the root of that in the modern setting? And at what point does that, you know, tip over an edge of being, you know, cute. Uh, and in the same way, whether it's white players or non-white players, you know, the same comments have been made about Kevin Peterson that have been made about Jofra Archer, where they've sort of questioned their loyalty to the team and, you know, whether they fit into an England setup. And it's all good until it's not good, right? Until they say something wrong, suddenly identity becomes the focus of criticism. And that, to me, is the really ugly part of uh, of how we how we look at all this stuff. And, you know, I think a trend that we've seen, uh, a narrative that's really important is this idea of the good immigrant, you know, which, again, the Tebbit test is all about that. It's like, are we acceptable on your terms and until what? And those goalposts are always shifting. And if you set things in such a way, we'll never succeed. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Wait, are you gaming on a Chromebook? Yep. It's got a high-res 120Hz display, plus this killer RGB keyboard. And I can access thousands of games anytime, anywhere. Stop playing. What? Get out of here. Huh? Yeah. 
I want you to stop playing and get out of here so I can game on that Chromebook. Got it. Discover the ultimate cloud gaming machine, a new kind of Chromebook. Uh, the series itself, obviously, like no cricket fan really needs to be told that it's one of the most famous series of all time. How much is the play? It, how, how much is it uh, uh, like an action scene behind, behind the scenes? Or is it more something to reference all the way through that perhaps, you know, audiences will remember, you know, uh, parts of it? Like, how, how did you... How did it yeah. sort of come about in the play? Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've had to make changes throughout the, the writing process. I think there was a really romantic part of me that wanted to sort of chart the five tests. And I think that's unfortunately a different play. Um, because also, like I mentioned at the start, there's also this other incident that's a part of the backdrop, which is the 7-7 London bombings. Mm-hmm. And my recollection is the first test, the Lord's test, happened two weeks after the London bombings and it went ahead as planned, but I'm sure there was a lot of question marks around whether or not such a big event could take place. And in fact, on that date, there were another series of attempted terrorist attacks that took place at other tube stations in London that were failed. So there is, again, an uh, an overlapping there between the incidents that form the backdrop of the play. So in the end, it became a reference point, you know, a thing that like Ismail and his friends talk about who's going to win who supports who, uh, that question comes up, where does Ismail's dad fit into, who's, who's he backing in this test series? And then ultimately the big sort of climax and ending of the play is like after England have won and the celebrations that take place around that. And you're seeing this character who's gone through a growth and a journey with his own cricket and his own life. And then he's sort of in and around the celebrations of this Ashes series and where does he fit into that? Which is, you know, not to give it away, but if let's say at the start of the play, he was, you know, couldn't be more excited about England and the Ashes. By the end of the play, I think his reference or his 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 own um, relationship to England's winning England winning the Ashes is, has slightly changed. Uh, the seven 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 attacks are fascinating. The Test matches were later, but the one day is I've just had a look at the schedule. Mm. Uh, so Australia were playing at Leeds. I think this is a one day. Yeah, it must be a one day. <laughs> Australia were playing at Leeds uh, in a one day. Uh, uh, on on the seventh of July, but three days later, so I'm trying to read my screen. Uh, <laughs> three days later, Australia um, were in London playing an ODI. Now this is the same Australian team that uh, you know had pulled out of Sri Lanka during a World Cup because they didn't want to play there. Uh, same Australian team that by that stage hadn't played in Pakistan for a long time because of terrorist um, actions there, and yet they were in England when a major terrorist um, incident occurred. And it didn't really, I'm sure it changed some of their plans and I'm sure it changed security a little bit, but they didn't really, as far as I'm aware, seriously talk about coming home or pausing it or anything else. Is is that kind of a double standard sort of within that anyway, but from your personal perspective, and and, and I'm I'm pushing you a little bit on the semi-biographical nature here, but how does 7-7 affect you as a 15-year-old? Um, at that yeah. time, like, how does it sort of um, change your life? Yeah, there's a really sort of acute stuff in the aftermath of these things where, you know, I recall conversations taking place among, you know, at school again about like who did what and who's responsible for what and are Muslims evil and this sort of thing. And I think until that age in my life as a Muslim, no one really knew what that meant and what that I was even a Muslim. And so it, just, it wasn't something that really came up until it became headline news. And then everyone had an opinion about a religion that I belonged to that, again, given the environment I was in, was a very private thing and something that happened at home and sort of didn't didn't 
uh, exist in the in the rest of the world that I that I existed in. And so that created you know levels of discomfort and things like that. And then again, at that age, I think is what makes it so significant and why it's part of the play is like that adolescent thing and how is that going to shape this person's life moving forwards? And I recall, you know, as a Londoner, born and raised in London, taking the tube to and from school, lugging my cricket bag around on the tube. And, you know, those things that happen where people would give you looks if you got onto the tube with a big backpack or something like that, which could have been my school bag stuffed full of equipment and things of that nature. And suddenly being aware, like you lose your innocence, I think, and that's the that's probably the best way I can describe it. You do a lot of growing up very quickly and you start to see yourself um, or see how the world around you sees you and start having to then figure out what to do with that. Do you defend yourself? Do you make excuses? Do you hide your identity in order to continue to survive? And I think those are tough choices facing a young person um, and ones that stick with you. And I also think that 7-7 in terms of British context is a jumping off point for how Muslims have been talked about in society till now, you know, because it was on UK soil, because it was linked to Islamist terrorism, it's allowed sort of a narrative to exist about Muslims in Britain that is very hostile and very ignorant and one that is fairly, fairly uh, mainstreamed. And we've seen that at all levels of our society. And that's really unfortunate. Um, and for me, the, yeah, the 2005 and 7-7 is, is a starting point for that. Hence why writing about it in 2023 feels uh, relevant. The interesting thing about English cricket, of course, is that there had well, there have been non-white English cricketers since eighteen ninety, whenever um, Ranji first played. <laughs> you know, infrequently at times, but there have been, it has happened, and then obviously, you know, through Basil Oliveira, then you know, West Indian migration, Asian migration, everything else, and there's been there was in your lifetime. You know, when you when you were younger, Nasser Hussein, uh, from probably you know in, in some ways a, a similar kind of background to yourself, um, you know, coming through uh, as as England captain. But it does feel that sort of the Adil Rashid Moin Ali era is something completely different, and the way that um, the Asian culture has been accepted, and also you know we talked about that academy before. This also this understanding that probably a lot has been missed because. English cricket wasn't looking in the right direction um, at many times. When when you look at modern English cricket as someone who has written now so much about, you know, who grew up through it, but also has written about it in, in that era, does it feel different now to you than it did maybe uh, when you were growing up? Yeah, I think specifically as it relates to sort of the South Asians in the England team setup, I the first thing that makes me think about is like, what's the impact of the IPL on on that and attitudes towards South Asian culture, even within an England setup? You know, you see through social media and other things like huge big name players from all cricketing nations, you know, spending significant amounts of time in India, loving it. Um, that's a huge part of their cricketing calendar now. And I can't imagine by and large that that hasn't been a positive, had a positive effect on the dressing room culture and just sort of embracing other cultures and identities. And I also just think like we've talked about already, like society has just moved forward in that way to be more embracing of those things. You know, the things that stick in my mind from the past are also, you know, big question marks about Hashim Amla not wearing a Castle Lager logo on his mm. South Africa shirt and facing a fine for doing that perhaps, or questioning his team loyalty because of that. You know, we wouldn't be having that conversation today, I think. And I think that's a really good thing. Um, and then, yeah, I think it's like, Looking back to me as a as a young person, Test cricket was everything by and large, you know, and white ball cricket as it. I don't think we referred to it then, um, but that seemed like <laughs> uh, as that then. But like that felt like a 
a somewhat uh, periodic punctuation that would come and go just with like World Cups, perhaps. I think that, you know, cricket now feels like a year round sport with so much, you know, so much excitement and difference from from different formats. Uh, that again, that sort of pushed the game in a, in a modern direction and an exciting direction. And I just also think that like, you can't understate the significance of someone like Azim Rafiq being brave enough to speak out on something like this and how much that pushes a conversation in a direction, you know, like sitting on a story of that nature, dealing with that on a personal level, and then choosing to be the sort of person to put that on their shoulders and be, and, and call it out, right. Call out the biggest institutions of English cricket um, and then face the consequences of that, you know, for better or for worse, that he's borne the brunt of, of that, of an experience that many, many non-white and South Asian players will have experienced in their, in their cricketing journey. And I hope at least the sort of long-term impact of that is a really positive one in terms of renewed or changing attitudes towards difference um, uh, in, in cricket in general. Hosting a summer barbecue, a backyard movie night, a slip and slide party, serving up Aperol spritzes, whatever you're hosting, don't do it without Drizzly, your go-to app for drink delivery. With Drizzly, you can shop local stores and compare prices on beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered to your door. Boom, hosting handled. Now, before you get back to folding napkins, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. You've mentioned the word identity a lot in this. And that's kind of why I got you on on the podcast to begin with, because when I read about the play for me, it was it was very much that sort of... I, I think most writers consider themselves uh, outsiders, even if they're not. It's just a natural way, maybe because we're all off in the corner with you know <laughs> notepad, note, notepads or, or laptops or whatever it may be. But it's really interesting for me that sort of juxtaposition of the successful young cricketer who comes from the non-white traditional background. Then, you know, uh, the 7-7 seven, seven attacks happen. You've got the ashes going on and everywhere else. Is this is this really you telling your coming-of-age identity story and cricket is just another part of, of what you're I don't know what's the best way to put it, of what your life narrative is. Is that is that what this is? Like you trying to explain where you come from and why you are what you are? I think kind of like what you said for a writer, I think there is a catharsis in the experience of writing that allows uh, self-reflection, allows one to um, look inwardly and learn more about themselves. I definitely feel in the five years of being a writer, I've spent a lot of time introspectively and learned a huge amount about myself, but also I'm displaying myself outwardly in, through my writing as well. It's been an opportunity for me to talk about myself in the context of my identity. If my goal is to tell stories that feature Muslim characters, South Asian characters, I need to sort of embrace that as my my identity too, which it obviously is. If you look at the color of my skin or if you read my name, those are things that one can understand about me, but how do I embody those things and where do I fit into that identity myself and there's a huge multitude of 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 experiences and uh, versions of me that I can't tell all of those stories so to some extent we can only I think write what we know and this play in particular has a has a hyper detail that is re- very recognizable to me and maybe is not reflective of a lot of other South Asians or Muslims who've grown up in the UK um I forgot the second part of your question that I thought was really well, I mean <laughs> I, I mean I, I think 
you, you know, you've obviously gone on to be a successful person with a play. Um, and, you know, I've, you, you spent the last few years of your life getting quite good at this. And your answers today suggest that, you know, if I get a chance, I'll be popping down to it, the play as well. So, but there is, there, there's sort of an apex sort of, of outsiderness of what your story, which is the thing that when I read it, I was really interested in. When you started writing it, were you thinking that you were writing about yourself or were you think you were trying to represent the people that you grew up with and that you identified with? Um, you know, is, is the outsider nature just part of being a uh, non-white skinned Muslim person mm. in, especially in, in, in that environment? Or, you know, is it something else? Yeah, I think, thank you. Thank you. For, I think that for me, the, the, the palpable part of that is like kind of what we've touched on a little bit already. It's like it exists on a knife edge, I think, this experience, which again, there is a universal aspect to this and there is obviously a, a specific aspect mm. to it that I can, I can speak to and I can relate to. I was an insider in many ways for most of my life. Perhaps I still am. I, I think of myself, you know, and the the grounding that my, my, my parents gave me by sending, by choosing to send me to a posh school, for instance, you know, that is a way to assimilate oneself into the cultural mainstream and things of that nature. But like, like I sort of said, I think you're an insider until you're not. And what are the, who, who's in control of that actually? And I think the, the cricket context here is the central relationship is between a star player and his coach and a coach who takes a dislike to him and it's not black and white. It's not like this is a racist coach and this kid is brown, so he doesn't like him. But maybe it is. We get to explore what is it that allows this player to get under this coach's skin. And again, I think stepping back and being like, well, how formative can a cricket coach be to a 15-year-old, 16-year-old's life is massive. It's probably something we haven't spent that much time thinking about. Um, duty of care in the sporting context, again, thinking about Azim Rafiq, thinking about teams in general, like, what what are the dynamics there that exist? Like, is it win at all costs? And therefore, what does that do to a young person? If the in, entire goal of organized sports is just win, 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 win. I think from an, again, from a parent's perspective, from when we try to sort of encourage our children, let's get into these things. We, we're, we're preaching things like teamwork and play nicely with others and, and all these really positive attributes. But is that actually a, re- a reflection on, on how sporting uh, competition exists in, in young people's lives and so it's all of those things like well do your friends only like you if you're good at the sport and if you stop being good at sport then why are you then bottom of the pile i think a school environment was really exciting to me to 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 sort of put on display because the hierarchy and the social structures of a school are very different to society at large and so it was like how can we sort of take a teenager who's really used to the setup that he understands he knows if i'm good at cricket i'm all good and throw him into the real world a little bit and see, well, where do I now uh, fit into this world? How good am I? Bad am I? Uh, you know, what's my status to use a sort of technical theatre term? We're always talking about high status, low status. Um, and that felt exciting to me because that, again, speaks to like this growing up thing. Perfect. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. The play is called Duck. It is running from Tuesday, the 27th of June to the 15th of July at the Arcola Theatre in Dalston. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. There is more information on my guests in the show notes. Please support them where you can, but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. 
Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia, and Meda Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. Our theme tune is by the Red Crickets. Podcast Network.